Hey friend, you're listening to the Devoted Women Podcast. The audio you are about to listen to is a recording from our in-person Bible study meeting and is intended to be listened to after having completed the lesson in your workbook. So for this particular study, you can head on over to amazon.com, search Engaging God's Word Genesis, get your copy, do the work, and then hit play. We are so glad that you have joined us. Um, if you did not listen to the podcast last week over lesson eight, make sure that you go and do that. Um, Tanea did a beautiful job of um, digging deep into that text, and it was not an easy um, section to dig into. I will say that much, but she did a beautiful job of of doing that, talking about how Abram goes and rescues Lot, and then um, how Melchizedek um, blesses Abram, okay? And and that's kind of where we pick up tonight, um, is on the heels of those things. So the covenant with Abram is what we're going over this evening. Uh, evening. I just turned into a Texan, y'all, this evening. And um, <laughs> um, the covenant with Abraham is where we formally see the covenant of grace established in the Old Testament, foreshadowing the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace under which we live today. So there are three significant questions to ask when studying the Abrahamic um, covenant. And we're not going to cover all of these questions tonight. It's hard to do so because really, when you look at the covenant with Abraham, you really have to study Genesis 12 that Angie went into a few weeks ago, Genesis 15, where we're going to sit tonight, and Genesis 17, where we will go um, next week. Okay. But I want you to ask yourself these questions as we as we go deep into those specific chapters. Um, First of all, what were the promises of the covenant? And we see those outlined in Genesis 12 and 15. Okay. The second one is what were the conditions of the covenant? We're going to see that in Genesis 17 next week with Tanea. And, or no, with Angie. Sorry, they switched on me. And... Who are the heirs of the promise today? Okay, which we'll also see um, in Genesis 17 in our study. So, Angie taught us a few weeks back that in Genesis 12, um, Abram is called by God to leave. Leave his family, his land, and his inheritance in order to follow God's call. And although Abram was an idol worshiper at that time, he was called, at the time he was called, he heard God's voice and he obeyed, thus beginning his walk of faith. In chapter 12, um, we see the stage set for the promises and the ceremonies that would be the central focus on the next um, several chapters of Genesis, and that's the Abrahamic um, covenant. So tonight we're going to pick up in Genesis 15, and this is a pivotal chapter in the story of Jesus, believe it or not. 
Um, for it's through this very promise that Jesus would be born some 1,700 years later. And by the way, if that isn't proof of God's sovereignty, y'all, I don't know what is. A plan that we see mapped up out before our very eyes in a book given to us from um, one man named Abram, 1,700 years to Jesus' birth. That's sovereignty, right? So we're going to start in uh, Genesis 15, 1 through 6, if you want to turn there and um, look at this passage with me. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my house, my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So we see right away that God is once again speaking to Abram. Here the scripture states that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Um, the, Hebrew, the Hebrew word for vision here is chazon. Y'all, I looked up how to pronounce that. Chazon. <laughs> um, which usually refers to a revelation received by a prophet. But unlike in Genesis 12, Abram does not remain silent this time. It is in Abram's reply that we see frustration. Abram has waited for the Lord to provide an heir, and he doesn't understand what the delay is. Abram's response reflects the tension between his faith in God's promise and his desire to know when it will be fulfilled. We see here that Abram tells God that Eleazar of Damascus, his servant, is likely going to be the heir, um, which was in keeping with tradition and customs of that time and region. If a couple remained childless, a trusted servant often became the heir. But God simply reaffirms that a biological son will in fact be Abram's heir. And I don't know about you, but I find Abram extremely relatable in this passage. Have you ever had to wait on the Lord? I mean, really wait on the Lord? <laughs> like Abram, I believe the promises of the Lord, but when things aren't happening on the timeline that I expect them to, <laughs> I become frustrating it, frustrated in the waiting. Anybody else with me there? Like Abram, it doesn't mean that I don't trust what God has promised, but there's a jewel of truth shown in this passage. It's in the waiting that God teaches us to trust him and to rely on him. Abram believed God would bring him an offspring, but the waiting was stretching his faith. In 15.5, God reminds Abram that his offspring will be more numerous than the stars. 
The reference to the stars is similar to how the 12 tribes of Israel are described later in Genesis 37, 9. And when God speaks of Abram's offspring being countless, he is foreshadowing the 12 tribes of Israel with all their, of their descendants. And because of Jesus, all the Gentiles who believe in him are adopted into this very line of descendants. So moving to 15.6, which was your memory verse for this week. I don't know if anybody um, sat and really memorized that, but if, if you're not doing that, I want to encourage you to do so um, because God's word should be written on our hearts, right? And there's no better way to do that than to memorize the scripture. So in 15.6, we come to arguably the most vital verse of the chapter. It says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is a climactic moment, a moment of choice, which Abram will either believe God or he'll turn from what he said. And I know that this one verse doesn't seem super climactic. It doesn't seem super pivotal, but this is the moment of faith right here. This is Abram's clear profession of faith. The moment God calls Abram, righteous. God's choice of Abram for the covenant is confirmed in Abram's belief. So let's dig deeper into Abram's faith for a moment. We're going to turn to Romans 4, 1 through 8, and to Galatians 3, okay? Um, Romans 4, 1 through 8 tells us, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed, he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Here, Paul clearly outlines that Abram did nothing to earn righteousness. It was simply granted him as a gift by God based on his belief alone. He believed. Isn't it beautiful that it's that simple? He believed. That's it. And in the blog this week, you were asked to look at Galatians 3 and study it. Here we find Paul breaking down bit by bit that Abram believed in, um, the believed and in that faith, God counts him as righteous and that righteous and that the righteous live by faith alone. Um, by this faith, Christ would come as the offspring of Abram. Again, that means you and I are grafted into the family also by faith. It's really very, so, so very beautiful. <laughs> So Abram is counted as righteous according to his faith and his faith alone. Notice that in both of these passages, Galatians 3 and Romans 4, um, 1 through 8, Paul explains that it had to be a simple belief that brought this about and not anything Abram does on his own. 
Otherwise, Abram could, or others could, give him credit for his righteousness. This was not so for Abram, and it is not so for us. Faith alone is the cornerstone of our salvation, of our righteousness. Faith alone. It is the climactic, pivotal moment where God calls, and we simply believe and profess it. And just like Abram in this matter, we, uh, we too, when we become believers, inherit a promised land. And that land is heaven. I don't know about y'all, but I'm pretty excited about that. <laughs> Not my power, but yours, God, right? I can't do anything to earn it. It's a gift from God by my faith alone. So to ratify the covenant, God calls Abram to make a sacrifice. And this part got a little weird. <laughs> when, when we're reading through the scripture and all of a sudden we're bringing three heifers and a pigeon and did anybody get lost there? I had to sit there for a little while. Okay. Um, God calls Abram to make a sacrifice and starting in verse nine, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Anybody ever wonder why a pigeon and not like a more beautiful bird? That's something I'm going to have to look into later. Why a pigeon? You know, it's okay. We got lots of those around here if anybody is looking for a sacrifice. <laughs> Visit downtown. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so uh, Abram brought, brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This is Genesis 9 through 11. So here we see God tell Abram a very specific list of animals to sacrifice. Did anyone else notice that all of the animals were to be three years old? Three years old. A heifer three years old. A female goat three years old. A ram three years old. So that, that led me down a rabbit hole, right? Why three years old? What's the significance here? It's because at the age of three, each had reached maturity and strength. And this detail is intended to remind us that we are to serve the Lord with the Lord our God with all our strength, and he must be offered the best that we have. At three years old, the heifer is its strongest and most mature. Um, the same with the female goat or the ram. Additionally, Abram was awaiting a sign. So instead of some miraculous sign, a heavenly sign, God simply told Abram to offer a sacrifice. Abram implicitly obeys. And in those days, contracts were made by, um, were made by the sacrificial cutting of animals with the split carcasses of the animals lying on the ground. And both parties to the covenant would walk between the halves of the animals, repeating the terms of agreement in the covenant. Okay? But notice in the, in the scripture here, 
it says, the Lord made a covenant. This is Genesis 15, 18. Literally, the Lord cut a covenant. If you turn to Jeremiah 34, 18 through 20, it makes a reference to this same practice of a covenant made by cutting animals and repeating the oath of the covenant as one walks through the parts. And if you skip down to verses 12 through 21, we're going to um, see this a little more clearly. So, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, um, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Notice that the Lord has put Abram into a deep sleep. The one who seems like is the focus of the story, Abram, is sleeping when the covenant's being ratified. He's asleep. He's gone. He's out. And this made me think of Adam, when Adam is providing the helper, uh, when God's providing the, the helper for Adam, what does he do? He puts him into this deep sleep, right? Here, God is providing for Abram a nation, a whole nation, and he puts him into a deep sleep. Abram is not the focus of the story. God is. It's in God's doing. It's in God's power. Remember that the custom was for both parties to walk between the split carcasses, repeating the terms of the covenant. But instead, we see God pass through. He appears in the form of a smoking pot and a flaming fire. So here's a side note. Isn't it odd for God to appear to men in the Old Testament well, yeah, men in the Old Testament, through the elements of nature. The smoking pot reminded me of the cloud that the Israelites followed in the wilderness as they wandered for 40 years. Like, I never made that connection before before this. Partially because I never stopped long enough to notice the smoking pot and the flaming fire, right? And then the flaming fire reminded me of Moses and the burning bush. Y'all, God is crazy good. Like, that is so cool to me. Anyway, that's side note. Verse 18 tells us that God made a covenant with Abram saying, 
Only God spoke the terms of the covenant. God made a covenant with Abram saying, God alone. Why is this important? Because in the covenants of God, he is the initiator and he is the authority. He alone fulfills the covenants. Period. In chapter 16, we see a reminder of why it must be God alone who fulfills the covenant. <laughs> Sarai does not have children. That's what it says in 16.1. And is approximately 75 years old right here in this passage. And following Mesopotamian custom among wealthy households, remember that is where um, Sarai and Abram originated, right, was Mesopotamia. <laughs> following the Mesopotamian custom among wealthy households, Sarai urges Abram to use Hagar, her servant, as a sort of surrogate mother to bear a child in Sarai's place. Here we see their pagan custom. They were trying to pull a worldly system into God's set-apart plan. As an Egyptian, Hagar was probably a servant given to Sarai and her family during their stay in Egypt. Um, childbearing for the woman and heirs, especially sons, were the priority in this time period. It was shameful to be barren. It was shameful to produce heirs and there not be a son among them. And isn't it like us to overcomplicate God's plan? Honestly, isn't it like man to overcomplicate it? Because while God had promised Abram descendants, he had not specified that they would come physically through Sarai. But let me add here also that God doesn't have to specify anything to us. He's God and we are not. We must remember that when we begin to question all the components and the working parts of a circumstance, he is God and we are not. We don't have to know every detail. We just have to trust and believe. So why does the narrative about Hagar immediately follows God, God's reaffirmation of his promises to Abram? Perhaps to illustrate that Abram's faith in Genesis 15, 6 was just rudimentary. It's very basic compared to the sort of faith Abram would exhibit in Genesis 22. And we'll get there in a few weeks. The faith that it takes to be justified. And for those of you who don't know that Christianese, we, that's what we call those words that us Christians throw around, you know. To be justified is God's right, righteous act of removing the guilt and penalty of sin, while at the same time declaring the ungodly to be righteous. So we have to remember that the faith it takes to be justified is rudimentary. It's basic. It's simple. We simply need to take God at his word that he has promised, namely that he has provided us salvation by Jesus' death and resurrection. And if you need proof of that, go to Romans 4, 22 through 25. It is not difficult to exercise faith for salvation. It's simple 
belief, simple faith. But as we continue to walk with God, we also walk through tests of our faith. In doing so, we grow to see that God is exactly who he says he is. And that even in the hardest times, there is hope. And that's hope with a big H. And that hope has a name. And that name is Jesus. Right? So Sarai giving Hagar to Abram to bear a child was a test of Abram's faith. God is trustworthy, and he tests our f- and, and, and tests of our faith are opportunities for us to learn faith in a deeper way, beyond saving faith. Each falter teaches us that God's way is better than our own, and we must learn to trust him more and more, to rely on him more and more. And each yes to his instruction makes it easier and easier to be obedient the next time. And in this succession of small yeses that God, um, it's in the succession of small yeses that God does big things for his kingdom. If we persevere, the hardest challenges to faith are the ones that ultimately drive home his faithfulness most deeply. Because no matter what, God still has a plan. And his purpose for us lasts forever. After all, just look at Abram. Let's pray. God, we just come to you tonight and we, we thank you for these pictures of faith in the Bible. God, as we're walking our, our Christian faith and um, our beliefs here on, on earth, God, sometimes we feel like we're walking it alone. Like we're the only one going through the tests and the trials. But God, your word shows us that there are those who have walked before us and that we can learn from their circumstances, God. We can learn from their fleshly falters and we can learn from their successful yeses. But most importantly, Lord, we can learn that through it all, you are faithful. And that you have called us to be set apart as righteous and blameless before you, Lord. And I pray that we answer that call, God, that we we remember that the gospel is simple. That believing faith is simple. That keeping our eyes on you can be simple. God, and that in doing so, you give us joy. You give us peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and long-suffering, Lord. God, may we... May we dwell on the gifts that you give us, the blessings, especially those of the Holy Spirit, Lord. When circumstances around us look to be dire or our, cho- our choices show that, that maybe we faltered, God, may we refocus and realign our heart on yours and remember that it's not in our works. It's not in our works that we 
achieve righteousness, God. It's only by our faith in you. In you alone, Jesus. God, I pray that as we leave tonight and as we continue to study your word this next week, that you just you open our hearts and our minds to what, what it is that you have for us and that we hear the Holy Spirit more clearly every week that we study Genesis, God. May we know our beginnings. May we know our beginnings, God, so that the rest of your word is illuminated for us, so that it comes alive, that we see your life more clearly, Jesus. We love you and we praise you. And it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.